Hello. Welcome to Cry Baby episode two. That was a, such a hammy introduction. <laughs> Welcome. Um, so, <laughs> since our last episode, uh, right now we've have uh, we have about how many listeners? I think when I checked this morning, around five hundred. Like five hundred. Yeah, something. that's cool. Yeah, almost six hundred. Oh wow, which is amazing. Thank you so much for listening. <laughs> Yeah, we expected about 100 listeners, so this is a lot more. Um, but yeah, so do you want to introduce today's episode and what we're going to talk about? Yeah, today we are talking about breakup music. Neither of us has been through a breakup recently, so it's not coming from that. It's coming from us being like connoisseurs of crybaby content and everybody we know crying this week to Red Taylor's version. We have been listening to Taylor's album Red this week. If you don't know anything about Taylor Swift or the lore behind it, she's been re-releasing her albums as Taylor's versions. Basically, the rights to the first few albums she recorded are not hers. They belong with like some skeezy music executive. And in order to reclaim... The songs that she wrote, she's re-releasing them. And I think some of them are like extended cuts. The version of the album we listened to was 30 songs long. And I think the original is 22. So she's packed it full of like extra content for her fans. Uh, She's extended her songs, some of them. She's brought on new people. So like Phoebe Bridges is on this album, which we we liked. Yeah, and we both love Bridges. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, um, so neither of us are really Taylor Swift fans. And that's not to say that we hate Taylor Swift. It's just that we don't listen to her. So this was a first-time listening experience for us. Yeah, and kind of want to preface this entire episode by saying, like, neither of us are musicians. So we're not, like, judging the songs technically. We're just, like, talking about vibes. You're just scared and of the Swifties. <laughs> <laughs> But, like, we're both wordy people, so maybe we'll be talking a bit about, like, what we think about lyrics and, like, the kind of narratives she constructs in her songs, right? Yeah. Um, But, yeah, so I think, like, this whole album is, well, apart from it being a Heartbreak album, it kind of follows this whole, like, lineage of, like, Jojo and Kesha and Free Britney where Taylor's kind of... um, I don't know. It's like it's more than an album, right? It's a, it's a cultural moment, right? right where it's like a movement of artists, yeah, are... female artists taking back what is theirs from a very patriarchal music system. I think Taylor Swift kind of has been the poster child of like, oh, uh, the artists that like. I think I saw an article titled like, "Why the Patriarchy Made Us Hate Taylor Swift." So she's kind of like the poster child of that. Um, so why did the patriarchy which, make us hate Taylor Swift? <laughs> According to the article, yeah. the article says that it's because like, oh, Taylor Swift represents what men think about uh, female musicians, which is like annoying and whiny and sings about their feelings. Um, personally, I don't think that's why we don't like her. <laughs> but I think that's an, uh, maybe, I don't know. 
Swifties use that often, though, as a reason why her haters hate her. Just like a sidebar, that's like the widest thing you could say. Just be like, Taylor Swift is the most discriminated against women in the industry. No, literally, like I've been looking at tweets, well, just for this episode, just like looking what people are saying about like Swift. And people are saying that people talk shit about Swift and don't talk shit about people like Adele or... Beyonce, um, which is not true. Not true. <laughs> <laughs> it's just blatantly not true. Um, yeah, but like but, Taylor okay, Swift, like famously doesn't take criticism well. Uh, neither do her fans. Like I think there was a Netflix series that I don't remember the name of because it wasn't like you know Netflix just churns out trash. Like they just release yeah. series just for the sake of them, and I think one of them made some like throwaway comment. It was a dumb joke about like Taylor Swift having a lot of boyfriends, and she like jumped on it, and she was like, "No, this is so sexist. How could you say this?" Um, <laughs> I don't know, man. You're Taylor Swift. You're like a multi-millionaire. You've got Grammys, I'm assuming, and like many houses. You can just let it go. Sometimes you are going to be the butt of the joke. It's like the price to pay yeah. for being in the public eye. Yeah, I just think that there's been a really strong underdog story accompanying Taylor you know ever seen ever since she won was it the Grammy and Kanye West like went on stage oh yeah and took it from her and then said it belongs to Beyonce and I think since then there's always this uh media narrative that Taylor is an underdog in the industry despite being basically one of the biggest female uh, female musicians in the industry I don't even think she's like one um, of the biggest female musicians I think she's just straight up one of the biggest musicians that is working these days That's true yeah. actually that is true Let's talk a bit about um the album itself Do you want to what do you do you want to start I just want to <laughs> say that if you're a Swifty and you're listening to this it's okay that we don't like the same music as you you don't have to send us mean DMs I'm just prefacing this because, like, <laughs> I guess I've been seeing Swifties all over the internet. Like, it happens whenever a major artist releases something, right? Like, their fans go into full yeah. marketing mode. And I, I, I feel that FOMO, I don't really have that sort of passion for anything in my life. Like, I wish I had that <laughs> drive to do something. But... I don't know, some of the some of the comments that I've seen are pretty scary. You'll see like journalists just express indifference, like, oh, I didn't really like Taylor Swift's album, and then like a million Swifties are in their mentions being like, Why don't you kill yourself? <laughs> Have you considered that your mother dropped you on the head as a baby? Like, whoa. <laughs> it's not that oh my god. <laughs> yeah, and I think like you did talk about like how I don't know, like the the how big this album is doesn't necessarily have to do with like just Taylor Swift, but it's kind of also like the pandemic and like what it is doing to people and what they want out of like mainstream music right now. Yeah, I think that partly the pandemic, like everyone's looking for comfort, but also we're at a phase in, I want to say popular culture where the industry, whether it's the music industry or Hollywood or TV, is just feeding us nostalgia. It's been happening for like five years now, I guess, where most of the major movies and TV things are being released are all remakes or they're capitalizing on some other IP. 
like what the biggest movie out right now is what Dune or The Eternals. I'm not sure, but Dune is from a book that is like 60 years old or something, and The Eternals is just part of like a larger Marvel Cinematic Universe. I don't know when the last time we got like a fully original anything was, um, in terms of like visual culture, and so. Taylor Swift releasing an album that's nine years old plays into that perfectly because everyone's like looking for stuff they already know. She's done a little spin on it. She's made it longer. She's updated some of the words. She's updated some of the people that she's working with. But if you were a Swifty nine years ago, and that would place most people, I guess, in their tweens or their teens, you're now a young adult and you get to listen to the album you grew up loving but with this like underdog narrative, like Natasha was saying, like she's fighting back, she's regaining control of her intellectual property. And yeah, what's not to like, really? Yeah, and I mean, I can kind of understand that because when Jojo did when Jojo did it, I felt the same kind of excitement. Um, you know, when she released uh she re-released her songs. And I felt the same thing when like Kesha did it also, just because I listened to Kesha when I was, like, super young. Um, but it, it's just a really savvy thing to do. And the album, I think, primarily is not just for herself, but, like, for Swifties, for fans in the first place. So it is very difficult for someone who is not a Swiftie to get into it or be as excited about it, I think. Yeah, definitely. I think when we both opened it on Spotify and we saw 30 songs, we were like, oh, my God. I don't have the attention span <laughs> for anything like that these days. <laughs> right? Yeah, exactly. Because it's not new music either. Yeah, mm. yeah. It's not new music. I guess as a as a casual listener of pop music, the only songs I knew were like the big pop songs. So like I Knew You Were Trouble, 22, We Are Never Ever Getting Back Together. Those are like the fun ones, I guess. Um, yeah. But most of the album is ballads or like slowed down emotional songs rather than like I knew you were troubles pretty funny I would say or at least I have that image of the meme with the goat <laughs> you know the video <laughs> where like yeah the someone has like spliced a video of a goat screaming during the chorus and that like I wish Taylor had invited the goat onto this album was that like um, the Vine era? Yeah, maybe. Yeah, yeah. Nostalgia getting me again. <laughs> but yeah, I think we should talk a bit more about maybe the album itself, or like even the short film. Oh, the short film. Uh, yeah, and kind of what we thought about it. Yeah, so I guess the flagship song on this album is "All Too Well," because she has a seven-minute version of the song and released a special ten-minute version just for this album. I think she dropped a version of the song called uh, All Too Well Sad Girl Autumn Version, which I listened to like the first minute of it. She's done it with like very ponderous sounding piano. And it comes with a short film that is written and directed by Taylor Swift, starring Sadie Sinks and Dylan O'Brien, two very attractive white people who appear to be reenacting the relationship depicted in the song, which as far as I know, yeah. refers to the relationship she had with Jake Gyllenhaal, which was like three months long or something. But 
from the information that Taylor leaks in her music seem to be a very uh, unequal relationship, I guess. Yeah. And I think I saw a tweet recently where like people who are not Swifties are primarily troubled with like they don't know if it's intentional that she leaves these kind of like clues to a puzzle for fans to figure out who her exes are knowing like what her fan base has been capable of doing yeah i mean i sent you like sending death threat i sent you the screenshot just now right where like i think john mayer is also mentioned in this album or like another album i'm not sure which one no he's like dear john it wasn't dear john just john yeah but i think like he's got a couple of other songs dedicated not dedicated but like Uh. written about him and he also didn't come off very well and a swifty basically sent him death threats and he responded and was like i'm responding to you um but i'm also responding to like you at random out of like the tens dozens of messages in my inbox do you really want me to die and the Swifty, who I saw on Twitter is like 15 years old, was like, oh my gosh, no, I don't want you to die. But like, you are sending these messages to a real person, like even though they're famous and supposedly at fault in the relationship, which like, we don't know because we've only heard Taylor Swift's point of view. Um, yeah. To send them death threats is like, it's pretty next level. Yeah, I think so too. Like you said, like it's all from like Taylor's point of view, right? And I think we were talking about this where I think my issue with I don't know what what these fans do at large is it feels like they're projecting a lot of their personal anger on people in Taylor Swift's lives, even though they don't know anything about them, precisely because she's been so savvy with creating like this like parasocial universe where fans are really, really invested in her personal life because she explicitly states that her songs are like her diary. Yeah, And so people think it's all real. Like everything is truth. And yeah, you don't know. Maybe she's embellishing part of it because it makes better art. Like that's autofiction, you know? Um, But I think when (laughs) the, the first time Red dropped, like nine years ago, in the album notes, like for the lyrics, Taylor had capitalize certain letters within the lyrics and strung together the capital letters would give you a message and that message would tell you something more about the song like reveal another layer to the song's meaning so fans are like rabid and like stringing together that with like paparazzi pictures with like interviews that she's given and piecing together their version of her love life and I think you and I were talking about this as well in the version of the love life that Taylor Swift portrays, she she paints a very particular picture of herself within the relationships. Yeah. Yeah, and yeah, we talked about this, definitely. And I think initially, at least when I was like growing up, let's say like the, the albums in the middle, like before before folklore, right? And maybe after Speak Now, because Speak Now still, I was still a tween and didn't understand anything. I think what put me off a lot of like her albums was like this very simplistic like moral view of love and relationships uh, where it's very clear who the villain is which is always her past lover and I think just in real life things are so much more complex um, 
and yeah, I mean, maybe she's like matured in her later albums, but because I didn't get into it then, like this evolution doesn't personally mean anything to me. And so it's hard to like now get into Taylor Swift songs because now like my, my taste is just like entirely different already, right? Um, but yeah, I think like when you like a musician, it's not even just about the music. It's it's kind of about the walls they build, they build with their songs. It's like a specific vision of like love or grief that resonates with you. And I just don't feel that resonance uh, when I listen to Swift songs. She never really like fucks up in a way that makes her unlikable or irredeemable. Or she doesn't really sing about being that person. The kind of like unhinged that, that Taylor Swift is doesn't make you dis- want to disown her. But the kind of unhinged I was made people really want to disown me or like not associate with me. And so like our life experiences really started to diverge once, you know, yeah. I guess I was trying my hardest to get into it um, because I thought we would like give the album a, a, a good fair go. And I was listening to All yeah. Too Well, which like I think is a well-written song um, in terms of mm-hmm. the musicality of it. I don't know. I'm not a musician, so I don't know the vocabulary. But like, I thought she did some interesting, inst- interesting things with it musically. It wasn't the progression yeah. that I expected for a 10-minute song. Um, and I was definitely like in my feelings for a little bit in, in the song, she is telling the story of this relationship between a girl and an older man. Um, cause there are lines in there, like you said that if we had been close in age, it would have been fine. And that made me want to die. And yeah, it sounds like a relationship with a man who invalidates her a little bit. And that's kind of what you get in the short film as well. There's a scene in the film where the woman who I guess represents Taylor Swift is at a party with her boyfriend and his friends and they're all older than him, uh, older than her. And she feels left out. She's just sitting in the corner. She's not saying anything. She reaches out to her boyfriend for affection. I think she gives, takes his hand and he puts her hand down and they have a massive fight about it later on in the kitchen. And yeah, I was like listening to the song and I I felt a bit like sad, definitely. I was like rooting around in my emotional memories trying to find a, a breakup that felt like this one. But like none of my relationships map onto yeah. this story. So I felt a bit empty. Like, oh, this isn't really, not in my feelings the way I want it to be. But I guess that's what like Taylor Swift fans like about her music, right? Because if you have had a relationship like that, she seems to be telling your story exactly because she kind of writes a very generalizable picture of love. Yeah. It's it's very, it's very like universal in that it's very, I think we talked about this, like the images she uses are quite movie-like. Like she has a very strong main character syndrome even when she's like broken up with. Yeah. Um, yeah, and I think listening to Swift it just like made me think a lot more about what exactly I like in other heartbreak albums or like other musicians who sing about like grief and like their their selves or things like that. And I was just thinking, you know, like when Mitski sings like nobody in that very like guttural way, or when like 
Phoebe kind of basically whines like Jesus Christ I'm so blue all the time um to me it's like the ability to let yourself be the pathetic unlikable person in the song or in the story or it's about expressing that cruelty that turns inwards toward you um when you're hurt that is like vulnerability to me whereas I think for Swift um the heartbroken main character is very easy to relate to and it's also I understand why people want to feel that way especially in the wake of a breakup but personally that's just not how I view love or relationships and so like the scenes that she builds up just I don't know just yeah like as you said it never maps onto my life nicely and I think it should be okay that I feel that way um that I just like some of her songs because of it. Yeah, I think partly why I didn't find a, a relationship or a breakup that mapped onto it is because, like, whenever I break up with someone, it's partly my fault. It takes yeah. two hands to clap, you know? Yeah. Um, and so I don't have any breakups where I'm like, this person was an ass to me throughout and I was a saint and they did me wrong. Um, I've definitely had breakups or, like, you know, men treat me poorly made me feel like yeah. small or whatever and I'm not saying that like I deserved it or like any anyone who gets treated poorly by a man deserves it that's not what I'm saying but yeah. um, I think it's really difficult to find a relationship where one person is solely to blame for everything that's gone wrong yeah. in it yeah I think it's just it's really just that like about the <laughs> having like a complex moral world in love like about the world building the musician creates for you through the lyrics um, that doesn't get through to us for Swift. Um, and I think like this is one thing that Stephen Thompson once said about Swift. And they, I think it was he was praising folklore, but he said that um, he's always been impressed by her artistry, but as a persona, I found her frustrating. I think of her who's, as someone who's extremely self-conscious without being self-aware. Ooh, that's good. Um, and yeah, right? It's good. And he says that she becomes better, like, from folklore onwards. But, yeah, I, I feel that too, like, in the albums before. It, it's that distinction, right, between being very, like, conscious of the persona she's creating and she seems really emotional, uh, emotionally lucid, but isn't aware of the way she's positioning herself in all of her past relationships. Yeah. Which is like fine, you know. We're not even saying there's anything like morally wrong with it. It's not problematic. It's just I don't find it very interesting artistically. <laughs> I think like we we recorded this episode like multiple times. This is our third time recording because <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and I think it's a bigger conversation about like why we are afraid to say anything bad about an album that we don't like for reasons that don't have to be like super justifiable but yeah it's like about stand culture at large right and how punishing it can be to people outside of in-group yeah like I'm not you know suffering under the impression that we'll release this album and then be like catapulted to number one in the iTunes charts because all the Taylor Swift fans have found us and are like listening out of hate like I don't think we're going to make that much of an impact um, but I think there's definitely part of what I think is a larger death of criticism um, in all art forms where like 
it's getting harder and harder to say I didn't like this and this is why because you're you you're seen as like not supporting the artist or in Taylor Swift's yeah. case I think a lot of people turn it as like oh you're not supporting women you're tearing women down like I can I cannot yeah. like something that's by a woman she's fine like she <laughs> you know this is probably the number one album right now so it's okay if the two of us didn't really like it yeah and I think I've seen like a lot of comebacks where like people say oh it's critically acclaimed how can you not like it I'm <laughs> just like Hmm. I'm a different critic. I don't like it. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> no, yeah, it's true. Um, and speaking of being like armchair critics, do you wanna? Should we kind of talk about the ten-minute video that everyone's been raving about? It's fine. It's fine. I mean, it's very beautiful. Everyone looks very nice in it. Um, the clothes are nice. I don't know. <laughs> I, I feel like <laughs> I'm losing my mind because I watched it, right? Going in with the expectation that it was like the best thing that had ever been produced. Uh, or I mean, not really, but I'd only heard about it from Taylor Swift fans. So I was going yeah. in with like super high expectations. And it was just fine. Like there's a scene that maps onto the lyric where I think she says something like, we're dancing in the refrigerator light. And... On screen, you see a fridge door that's open and there's white light coming from it. There's yellow light coming from somewhere else on screen, I think like a window or something. And it's incredibly literal, which I think makes sense because you said that her music is quite cinematic. Like the images she chooses to use are very cinematic. Um, They're not particularly abstract. Uh, And, you know, it was like, yeah, okay, if I'm a fan, I'm like seeing this come to life maybe I've had my own images of it while listening to the song and I'm seeing it come to life that's exciting but it's nothing groundbreaking and it was really funny to see Stan tweets like oh um it means a lot because the fridge light is cold like him but the window light is warm like her and so they are different (laughs) yeah I think that to me that's the, the main reason why sometimes I feel more strongly than I even actually do about Taylor Swift just because people keep insisting that it's cinematic brilliance when when I first saw it like someone I think someone pieced together um parts of all too well but then they overlaid tolerate it over is that another one of like the music yeah yeah it's another I think it's from like evermore okay. maybe um but then <laughs> I thought it was a fan cam just because it was <laughs> the film itself is so heavily post edited, um, <laughs> but yeah, I think that's a bit of a problem with like a lot of like Swift's MVs where it feels ultra literal, like things like colors or you know sometimes people are like, oh, but she uses like literary references, but they're really like obvious ones like Charles Dickens or Robert Frost or like Romeo and Juliet or something, um, yeah, and, and it just doesn't. Her references don't add a lot to what she's already saying. It feels like she's just like dropping them. And I think for Taylor Swift, the most meaningful... So I watch a bunch of like Easter egg videos, right? The most meaningful references that she nestles in her videos are all self-referential. Um, so they're like either like inside jokes that only Swifties will know or they point back to like details in her personal life or like details in her previous albums. And 
I think that's savvy because it's like fan engagement. And when fans see it, they're always like, wow, that's so smart. She nestled it here. But again, I I just feel like references like that is just <laughs> proof. Uh, it's just proof of fans um, for how much they know her and her life's work and like her life's details. But as an outsider, it doesn't come off as super impressive. I wonder if that's where art like popular art is going these days like everything needs to be turned into its own self-contained cinematic universe like we definitely have that with movies right like marvel obviously being the biggest culprit not only do they have their own movies they've got like tv shows they've got i don't know i can't keep up but like it's a full-time job to be a fan like you have to keep referencing other things that they've made um in order to like fully I guess, glean all of the information that the artist is giving you. Yeah, and like you see that in full force in K-pop as well. Like, you know, like Luna and Espa, the band itself exists in its own universe. Yeah. So they have like different storylines building up to like the full universe of that band. It's kind of crazy, but it's so effective. Like it's insanely effective at keeping fans engaged. Maybe that's also why like, Um, it's diff- it's more difficult for criticism to exist these days. Um, I mean, I'm, I'm making a bit of a reach here, but if you're a fan who has invested hours and hours and hours into consuming somebody's back catalogue and their lore, basically, it's going to be like yeah. even harder for you to hear that someone doesn't think it's very good. Exactly. And the first thing they challenge you on is like, oh, but have you heard all of this? No. I, right. <laughs> no, I'm not going to do it. And it's just like, I'm not a fan. I, yeah, I shouldn't be expected. Yeah, I shouldn't be expected to know every single song in order to make a judgment on whether I like this song or not. Yeah, I'm allowed to have an opinion. <laughs> if I like it, I like it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think I'm definitely, when it comes to music at least, more of a casual listener. And that's probably why I gravitate towards listening to like really camp music. <laughs> it doesn't ask a lot from you. Like one of my favorite artists is Carly Rae Jepsen. Yeah, and we did like a poll recently, like yeah. yesterday on Instagram. Um, let me see the results. I think it was like eighty percent of everyone who responded is a Swiftie. <laughs> I think yeah, most people are Swifties or neither, but a few of you are Jepsies like us. Um, I, I think we do we do kind of like like artists who make songs where they're a bit pathetic. Oh yeah. <laughs> I don't know what that says about us. <laughs> so to me, Phoebe Bridges and Mitski are the sort of songwriters who do that sort of writing. Um and like as you said earlier, you said like good storytelling is when people can convey a feeling that you didn't really know that other people also share or make clear to you a feeling that you you couldn't maybe articulate before. Or like you said, the Mitski line where she's like, I was so young when I behaved 25. And then you hit 25 and you're like, fuck. <laughs> and yeah, so it's like that that casual position of her feeling that, that gets to me. I think it's no fault of Swift that like, maybe like she just is very likable in her relationships. Maybe, but I also think that maybe she controls you know? her image a lot. Which like, yeah, I it's probably a good idea if you're in the public eye as much as you are. Um, but... Yeah, I, I think it's hard not to when you're under so much scrutiny. Yeah, but I, I definitely enjoy artists who are more self-deprecating because I think, well, I guess that's the sort of person that I am and I think that's a more honest way to write about emotion. 
which just makes it interesting to me, like the Phoebe Bridges and Taylor Swift collaboration. Yeah, curious. I did think that her her involvement on the album was one of the strongest parts. It's like a lyric where she goes something like, "How can someone know everything at eighteen and nothing at twenty two? That's a really yeah. good moment. Yeah, actually, Taylor Swift collaborates with like amazing artists like this. Few Bridges, Bonnevere, she worked with The National. Do you think there'll be like a Jepsy Swifty cross crossover sometime? I don't think Colory Jepsen's serious enough to like. make it onto a Taylor Swift album. <laughs> <laughs> really? Well, she's like collaborating with more serious artists, right? Like The National, Bonnevere, they're like they're not known for having fun. But Bridges. <laughs> Bridges is also not necessarily like she's like an indie darling now. But she's not She's like indie darling who loves to be a meme. I guess, but her music is like pretty serious, I think. Yeah, she is. But her like her online persona is like batshit crazy, which I love. I mean, I listen to like, I want to listen to camp music. <laughs> I, I, I think I do, you know, I do have like an entire library full of very like verbose indie music where it feels like someone is just being very self-deprecating into the microphone. My favorite band is Lost Campesinos, and they're a British band. And that's this one song from very early on in their career where it's a breakup song, and the singer goes, it's as if I walked into the room to see my ex-girlfriend, who, by the way, I'm still in love with, sucking the face of some pretty boy with my favorite band's most popular song in the background. Is it wrong that I can't decide what bothers me most? In the forefront of my mind is a thought not of you underneath, but of me coming out looking worse. And it's a very, like, ugly sentiment. You know? I love it. I like when songwriters write ugly sentences. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Like, it sounds so, like, a real thought in your head. Yeah, yeah. Like, I like their music because it's very self-deprecating, but it's also very real. Like, breakups are not just you've wronged me and I'm sad, but they're also like, damn it, how do I win? <laughs> which um, is why and- we like better so much as a song, which is our oh, yeah. by the way. <laughs> right, it's Wait, also very like, fuck you. Yeah. And like, honestly, people are unlikable in breakups. And when you break up, you're often, you often become a really unlikable person because you're so like in the ditch, you know? I definitely become like my me. worst self when I'm me too. during like during a breakup. Me too. Yeah. That's why I feel like we can't really relate to, you know, being the person that you root for in a breakup necessarily. Yeah, because even when I've been wronged, like it's still my fault. It's but it's not it's like it's my fault as much as it's the other person's fault. Breakups yeah. are like a two person thing, unless Unless someone, like, runs over your dog and then cheats on you with your sister, like, it's very rarely one person's fault. Yeah. And I feel like I'm always very angry Mm. in response to breakups. I get really bitter. At least, like, you know, in the fever of it, I'm like, fuck. Yeah, I can, I can, I can empathize with that, definitely. But like I said, like most of the music I listen to is super camp because I don't really, I don't really want to feel my feelings very much. Yeah. So like, like we ask people if they like Carly Rae Jepsen, like I love Carly Rae Jepsen, and I think, 
I think why I love Carly Rae Jepsen so much is her music is very shameless. Like, it is earnest, but it's earnest in a way that doesn't take itself that seriously, I think. Yeah, I think we were saying it's very cheeky. It's like tongue-in-cheek. She does it with like a wink, right? Mm. Um, And because it's like so cheeky, it has a bit of like that super self-aware and slightly... You know when you do it cheekily, it's slightly self-deprecating. Do you think Carly Rae Jepsen is self-deprecating? I don't think she is like self-deprecating the way your indie artists are but she's a bit like kind of like teasing herself for being so you know innocent about it kind of ironic it's like sincere and ironic at the same time um and to me that's i don't know that that's shedding the kind of self-consciousness that can come with making a song about like love and, and like heartbreak yeah, like the music is unabashedly bubblegum. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. I really like Kali Rae Jepsen. We are just talking about Kali Rae Jepsen and BPD the other day because like so many of her songs are so relatable um, to us. So we added it in the playlist. Uh, we added too much in the playlist, right? Yeah, and I think Not That Type of Girl. Is that the name of the song? Uh... Is it not the type of girl? Is it your type? Your type, yeah, sorry. Yeah, it's a song where she goes like, I'm not your type of girl, you know, I'm not going to pretend. Yeah. I'm going to think of me more as a friend and it's so melodramatic. But no, it's And like, she says that at the end of the song, she's like, I'm sorry, I didn't mean that. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and I think like a lot of people still think of like, call me maybe when they think of Carly Rae Jepsen. No, she's evolved so much as an artist. So much, yeah. But mostly people think of that, like like Kiss, right? The album. But Emotion and Dedicated are such good albums. Yeah, um, but they're also like completely... They're just really camp, I guess. Like this, the whole album, Emotion, is full of very juvenile emotions, I think. Mm-hmm. Like, I really like you and Run Away With Me. They're not very complicated. On, on like, you're my favorite color. Yeah, yeah, but they are like... They're not pretending. They're not very self-serious. So that's why I enjoy them. And I think it's just... It's kind of the way, like, hyper-pop is trying to, you know, go to, like, the extreme of pop. I feel like this is, like, trying to go to the extreme of that bubblegum lyric feeling Mm. where where things like Favourite Colour, you're smiling, you're listening to it, and you're just, like, grinning like a 10-year-old in love. Um... And yeah, I, I think I would imagine people who like Taylor Swift might like Carly Rae Jepsen a little bit more, but we aren't getting a lot of answers where people like both. Yeah, I don't know. Curious. Um, there seems to be a binary here. <laughs> <laughs> I, oh, I do want to say though that like when we say that a song feels very BPD, it's just because we relate to it. We're not yeah. like armchair diagnosing Carly Rae with BPD. I think like also, just because, um, how do I explain this? Like a very borderline personality sort of trait is to feel an emotion and to feel it to its like maximum intensity all of the time. Yeah. But just because you feel emotions very strongly doesn't mean you have borderline. So yeah, the first thing I learned in therapy, and it was super useful for 
the forever basically for like framing how I saw BPD is that the things I was feeling, like the things I felt were mostly normal feelings. Um, like when I got angry or sad, I always thought it was because like I was a bad person. So I was feeling those things. I was disordered. So I was feeling those things. My therapist really kind of drilled in this really core concept that everything I felt was normal. It's just that I was expressing them in a really disordered way and to an extreme that was not normal. But the feeling itself and the triggers for those feelings are actually really, really normal. Like, it's normal to feel upset for the things I felt upset for. It's only the degree that is disordered. So, I think we're kind of bringing this up because a lot of, like, um, after the first episode, a lot of you kind of asked how we got our BPD diagnosis or, like, how we even, like, got to know about BPD in the first place. So, in the last episode, we kind of did a really brush and go, like, touch and go version of it. So, I guess now we want to explain a bit more about just the early part of our treatment, like, how we eventually, you know, got diagnosed or, I don't know, how we even, like, knew about the symptoms in the first place. Um, so yeah, Ruby, you got diagnosed really late, right? Compared to me. I got diagnosed yeah. super late. I was like, this is maybe like 2017, so not that long ago. Um, and <laughs> it's really funny. It was the summer that Ariana Grande and Pete Davidson were dating. Oh my God. You found out to do Pete Davidson? Yeah. Because, like, it was huge, right? It was huge news. Everyone was like, who is Pete Davidson? Why is Ariana Grande, Grande dating this guy who looks like Uncle Fester? Um, and tabloids were being really unkind and digging up all of this stuff about Pete Davidson, including the fact that his dad had died in, like, 9-11 um, and that he had borderline personality disorder. And it was the first time I had really looked into what it was. And I was reading the symptoms and I was like, what? <laughs> Wait a minute. <laughs> Sounds like me. Wait, so before that, were you already going to therapy or not at all? I wasn't going to talk therapy. I was, every now and then I would see a psychiatrist and get antidepressants because, uh. um, yeah, I, I, I'd have very depressive downswings. I'd had like stints in hospital, suicidal thoughts and behavior, that kind of stuff. And I thought that it was purely chemical, like a chemical imbalance that needed to be fixed with medication. Um, and it never really got to the crux of why I felt so out of control when I felt certain emotions. Yeah. Like some emotions are so overwhelming and I was like, but I'm already medicated. Why am I feeling so bad? Um, and then I read Pete Davidson's symptoms in some shitty tabloid online and I thought, oh no, this is it, like this is me. And I went to see my doctor, my psychiatrist, who I've been seeing since 2013 and I asked him, um, do you think I have borderline personality disorder? And he said, yeah, I just didn't tell you because I didn't think you needed to know. I was so upset with you. Oh yeah, actually some doctors don't find it necessary to tell their patients their diagnosis. Um, I think it's just like a 
ethical, unethical thing for some of them. They feel like the patients might lean into that diagnosis too much. Yeah, I think he told me that he thought it was a very drastic diagnosis and I didn't need to hear it. But I was really upset with him because I needed the diagnosis to make sense of what was happening to me. No, same. And after I got it, I was like, oh. So the way that I react to like emotional triggers isn't normal. Like This isn't what normal people do. But it is a described basket of symptoms. So... It means that, like, I'm not uniquely insane. Yeah. You know, like, there are ways that you can mitigate how bad it is. Yeah. I think it's really hard for you, like, not knowing what you're going through for so many years. Because you say you got diagnosed in 2017. And you start therapy in 2013. So that's four years. So he didn't tell you for four years? Or, like... Well, he wasn't my therapist. He was the uh, guy who prescribed me medication. I see. So it was, like... No, I'd never done any, like, big excavation kind of talk therapy. Um, so when did you apparently start that? Uh, I started that year. Uh-huh. Um, I started seeing two different therapists, actually. I was two-timing them. I was in the U.S., so I had really robust student insurance, and each session was, like, 10 bucks. Nice. Uh, and the conventional wisdom when it comes to seeing a therapist is you, you should try them out the first time, like a first date. Yeah. And if you like them, keep going back. And I had gone on two first dates with two therapists at the same time. And I liked them both. So I just never broke up with them. <laughs> I just kept seeing two therapists. I mean, if it, it was that affordable, why not, right? Never right. in your so life. I therapy like twice a week. And they had very different approaches to therapy. One of them was like, I guess she was doing cognitive behavioral therapy. Mm. So I would go to her and I'd tell her like what happened over the past week. She'd talk to me and be like, okay, this is how you're thinking about something. Maybe you can try thinking about it differently. Or she would tell me like, no, the way that you're reacting to something this person has done to you is really normal. Like you are not crazy for thinking that you're being mistreated or you're being um, gaslit or whatever. Yeah. And that was also, like, I needed to hear it because I was so used to thinking of myself as the wrong person in the relationship. Especially right after getting the diagnosis, it was very easy to frame everything that happened in my romantic relationship as my disorder. Yeah, exactly. It becomes a really easy scapegoat, right? And I think that's kind of one potential because in the previous episode, I said it's really good to get someone who really knows your disorder I feel like if you're not dating someone who is generous, that can be a potential pitfall and that they, if whenever you fight, they can use it against you. And I've experienced that before as well. And your sense of self is already so fragile that you just internalize that. So yeah, yeah, it's super damaging. Yeah, I definitely had that experience right after I got my diagnosis. I think it was like difficult for me to come to terms with. My partner wasn't an expert. And so anytime we had any kind of conflict, we both looked at the disorder as the reason. And that meant we weren't really engaging with why the triggers kept coming up. Um, Yeah. How about you? How did you get your diagnosis? Okay, so I got diagnosed a lot earlier. So I was like 17. 17, I think. And actually, I personally think I was diagnosed too early. Um. I wish I were diagnosed like a bit later. Um, just because I, I think CBT was 
Well, I'll get to I'll get to that later. But I actually first found out about BPD when I was fifteen on Tumblr. <laughs> Um, so, like, well, on one hand, we're talking about how, like, self-diagnosis is, can be really unhelpful. Um, but I think it's helpful if you are already doing therapy or if you're on the way to try to get diagnosed. Um, so I found out because I was on a really dark part of Tumblr at the time. And it was just, like, <laughs> a lot of, like, mental health issues were being discussed. And then I remember someone that was, like, a post once uh on like the symptoms of bpd and i remember very specifically i was in my high school canteen with a schoolmate reading the wikipedia page for bpd and i remember the the page uh the picture for the page is some painting or something and i was just reading through it i was just like i turned to my friend i was like hey do you think this is me (laughs) and she was like "Hmm." (laughs) she read through it and she was like this kind of sounds like you um and really shortly after, I got caught for harming, basically, at home. Uh, and then I got, like, shipped off to therapy. First time I went to therapy, it was, like, a Christian therapist, which was super bad. Uh, I think I went to about two or three before I settled on one. And then, yeah, I didn't actually bring up my diagnosis to my therapist. and well, my self-diagnosis, actually. Because at the time, I think they were just, like, trying to keep me from like harming myself or like dying or whatever so I was just like diagnosed with depression anxiety first which I think a lot of BPD uh people are diagnosed with first because you know yeah, it they, causes they usually get depression first yeah and then I think a lot of us get bipolar yeah, uh no I think it's easy to get like misdiagnosed with bipolar yeah that's but, what I meant like you yeah. really get the misdiagnosis as it just being major depressive disorder and yeah, then yeah bipolar yeah exactly before you get the borderline diagnosis yeah. i think like one big telltale is just like the duration right because you know like with bipolar like the manic episodes are much longer and depressive episodes also but in borderline you, you can go through this those um oscillations like five times a day yeah yeah i got the bipolar disorder diagnosis and it didn't really fit me because if you're having a manic episode you're like having delusions of grandeur and you're having like incredible energy and you're off doing yeah no I wild and creepy things. and like <laughs> borderline where you have like one hour of thinking that the person that you've just met is like the key to your life being happy forever and then the next hour you're like they're never going to speak to me again i'm a miserable worm yeah um those vacillations are a lot quicker yeah everyone sees it's kind of like having the emotional oscillation of like maybe a month in a day and yeah yeah and when it's when it's untreated and at its worst it can be like really really tiring I think uh the other thing is like when people of BP are like suicidal it's I feel like it's for very different reasons it's always like for me at least it was like genuinely uh not, it wasn't even like to end my suffering or whatever. I was just like genuinely believing that everyone has abandoned me and everyone will be better off without me. Like, I think like the the core reasons are like super identifiable for BPD. Like abandonment issues as like the central pillar. Yeah. I, I think I definitely, like the few times I have felt intensely suicidal, it w- it came with a perceived sense of abandonment yeah or rejection and then thinking like 
if this person doesn't want me, nobody else in the world wants me. Yeah. I can't imagine being happy if I'm such an unlikable person. Exactly, like being like suicidal in response to like criticism, like mild criticism. Yeah. It's, yeah. But like how also, helpful. Also like really unhealthy. Yeah, how helpful do you think? So like obviously you said you had two different therapists, right? And you said one did CBT and the other one... The other was one just... was like a woo therapist. Uh-huh. I went into her office and it was like full of crystals. Um, she did this kind of therapy called integrative family systems mm-hmm. where the therapist believes that your personality or your psyche is made up of like different parts and some of your parts are like protective parts. Some of your parts are wounded parts. Mm-hmm. The best way I can explain it is I was, um, I was like recounting something that happened in my childhood mm-hmm. and she asked me like, okay, now I want you to talk to your eight-year-old self. Mm. What kind of questions are you asking? So like I would have to role play as different parts of myself mm-hmm. during the therapy. And like oh. the first few times we did it, I thought she was fucking crazy. And she looked at me and she was like, no, no, just go with it. Um, but it, it helped me unlock a lot of like realizations about my younger self, I guess. Mm-hmm. It was it was a sort of therapy that was like deep excavation. I never did that sort of therapy, but before I did CBT, uh, DBT, I did like something called EMDR. I don't know if What's you've that? heard of it. It's like this eye movement desensitization thing. Um, what does it stand for, EMDR? Eye movement desensitization and reprocessing, I think. Oh, EMDR. Um, yeah, EMDR. So basically like talking about a lot of like traumatic things, but like with like associated like eye movements to like dissociate the feeling from the memory and then trying to like talk about those emotions again with like healthier emotional associations. Oh, okay. Interesting. What yeah. you're brainwashing yourself. Yeah. <laughs> so, I mean, we both tried like two different kinds. Do you find like, do you think it was helpful that you did both at the same time? Or do you think one of them helped more? Um, I think, I, I, it's hard for me to say whether they were helpful or not. I think just in the wake of getting the diagnosis, I was so eager to make up for lost time mm-hmm. that I thought I would try anything. <laughs> That's true. You know, I was really like, if this works, I'll try it. If that works, I'll try it. I did like an outpatient stint at the mental hospital for a bit when I was living in the States, which was like a, a daily program for young people. So I check into the hospital in the morning, do some like group therapy exercises and stuff. And I did that for like a couple of weeks. I was just throwing spaghetti at the wall and hoping that something would stick. Mm. Um but really, I don't think I stabilized until I started DBT for real. Mm-hmm. When and do you DBT start that? is sorry. When do you start that? Mm, I think when I moved home, so like twenty nineteen. Oh, okay. So DBT is a kind of therapy called dialectical behavioral therapy, and it is recognized as like pretty much the only effective treatment for BPD. Mm-hmm. Borderline personality disorder unfortunately cannot be fixed with medication. Yeah. I think things like bipolar disorder 
is recognized to be some kind of chemical imbalance. So if you can, I think doctors prescribe lithium or some other kind of mood stabilizer and they help the cycles become less drastic. But Borderline doesn't have a medical fix in that, like a pharmaceutical fix. Yeah. So the the main kind of therapy is DBT, which was it's like relatively new. I think it was only invented in like the 80s, yeah. 70s or 80s. Um, and it's dialectic because... I guess the simplest way of explaining it is it's a two things can be true sort of therapy. Yeah. It's getting you to accept that like two very different thoughts can be true and can exist because people with borderline are very prone to thinking in black and white. But DBT tries to get you to think that like two polarizing thoughts can be harmonious and can exist and you can be at peace with them yeah i think that's obviously like the the heart of it right the core of it but i think probably the most immediate skill you learn when you first go into dvt is like distress tolerance just yeah that's huge (laughs) basically being able to tolerate because we said in the previous episode right that we can't differentiate between small and big emotions. So all emotions feel like the end of the world. And I think if you are just diagnosed or going to be diagnosed, this is the first thing you learn. You need to learn how to uh, sit through those moments uh, where everything feels like it's blowing up in your face. So I'll give you an example that like makes me look very bad. Yeah. But <laughs> in like previous relationships, whenever I thought the other person was upset with me, I would immediately try to fix it. Yeah. And in the state that I was in, I was not going to fix anything. Mm. And so that would be like calling the other person until they picked up. Because I just thought that like if we spoke, we would fix things. Where um, a more reasonable, calm person would have been like, oh, I'm going to go do something else for a bit and come back to this later. But like the distress from feeling like I was in a fight with my partner or I, I had upset them was so intense that I needed to talk to them immediately. And one of the skills that I learned immediately in like DBT was distress tolerance, as Natasha said. And it's it's like a very simple principle. It almost feels too simple. But it's the idea that you just sit with how unhappy you are and realize that like the feeling isn't going to end you. Yeah. Or I think also recognizing that the feeling is a moment and the moment will end but when you entertain the moment you blow it up into an event that's something kind of- that i heard very early on in my mm. therapy journey was this sentence and it really stuck with me mm-hmm. it was like your feelings are real but they're yeah. not necessarily true yeah so you can feel incredibly upset and it's true like it's valid that you feel that way but it doesn't mean you have to act on them because they're not necessarily telling you the truth about what's happening in your life. Right, exactly. I think that ties into what you said about like holding two things as true, where before this would be like, oh, we're feeling bad. Uh, for instance, we said like uh, the restaurant, for instance, was closed, right? And uh, so you're feeling bad. That, and for us, it means... That means our relationship is going to end because like things are going badly now, right? Um, and like the feeling of feeling disappointed is real, 
But then the association you make after that your relationship is going to end because the restaurant is closed, it's not true. Um, yeah. And it's being able to like recognize both and then like distract yourself enough that you don't act on either. <laughs> uh, yeah. I think VPD is a lot about like finding distractions, right? When you, when you feel um, distressed, basically. It is. It's like... It feels really childish. You're like a toddler and you're trying to like remind yourself that the world is bigger than the immediate yeah. emotion that you're feeling. It's just, we don't really have a lot of like tools to like self-soothe on our own. Yeah, and that's what a therapy is for. It really is like, it's such a boring form of therapy. I think growing up with TV and movies, I really thought that therapy was going to be me like drilling down to my childhood trauma Talking about my attachment styles, like recounting everything that had ever happened to me that was upsetting. But it's not like that at all. DBT is really just learning skills. Yeah. Um, Yeah. It's very like, all right, today we're going to talk about the skill of distraction. Oh, okay. I would say, though, that my first few sessions were a lot of crying. In the beginning, Every time my therapist asks me a question, I'll, I'll just break down crying. I just once spent an entire session just crying and I ripped apart a stress ball. Wow. Yeah. When I was a teenager, I was like a bit crazy. <laughs> she just asked me something like, how was your week? And then I took a stress ball and I tore it apart. Therapists are so strong. I could never be right? a therapist. Exactly. <laughs> There's like a whole um, list of skills that DBT teaches you they're like lots of different mnemonics um oh, yeah they're, they're like four main pillars right so we've talked about distress tolerance mm-hmm. the other three are emotional regulation mm-hmm. which is not the same thing as distress tolerance distress tolerance is when you're trying to manage your impulsive behavior so like instead of calling this person on the phone do something else that makes you sit with the distress yeah. and some of the skills they teach you are like hold an ice cube and focus on that feeling instead of like whatever else you're feeling. It's a bunch of like... I think the one I, that I learned the most was opposite action. Mm. Uh, but this, this... I think people learn it for other things as well. But I learned it super early on just because I was super prone to self-harm. And it's just basically, whatever you want to do in the moment, just do the opposite. And it's really easy for BP, uh, BPD people to follow because it's so simple. I think like nuance is really hard for us to understand like in the moment of things. But when you just say opposite, that's super easy. <laughs> yeah, the other three pillars of DBT are emotional regulation. Um, and like it's interpersonal. Like interpersonal effectiveness yeah. and mindfulness. Yeah. And yeah, when I say them, it really sounds so simple. Like emotional regulation can be like little things like hey, remember to eat. Yeah. Sometimes you feel really angry. It's because you're hungry. You need to eat something. <laughs> and interpersonal effectiveness is like, I mean, it's what it says. Like, it's like, how do you talk to another person Yeah. and get what you want? Not in a manipulative way, but like, I think sometimes when you have DBT, you tend to idealize the other person or villainize them, vilify yeah. them. Yeah. When you have a difficult conversation, you're walking into it, you have to remember like, okay, what do I want? What does the other person want? How am I going to express this need? Assert myself in Without a respectful way. Yeah. Yeah. 
I think that's something that is really hard as a BPD person. Like you're just you just always end up being so mean to your partner when you fight. Or to yourself. Yeah. Oh, I'm more of like a lash out girl. Were you more oh, like I'm internally disrupted? <laughs> yeah. So you don't villainize your partner as much? Um, no, I tend to put my partners on a pedestal most of the time. Don't they fall off when you fight? I'm trying to think. I guess, but you know, sometimes you have partners who play the reverse card and then it works very easily on me. Oh, that's They'll be true. like, no, you. And I'm like, yeah, yeah, me, you're right. I am the worm. I'm the bad person. Oh, yeah, it usually goes like that. It's like, I think they're really good and then they do something and I'm I say things like you're the most selfish person I've ever met in my life. Um, and then they reverse it on me and I'm just like, well, time to die. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, which is a classic like pre-treated BPD interaction. But yeah, so I think interpersonal effectiveness tries to uh, give you a different outcome to that discussion where you don't say the bad thing in the first place. The last um, DBT skill is mindfulness, which I guess is the most mainstream one. Like everyone is doing mindfulness. Now corporates are doing mindfulness. You like scroll on Instagram and there'll be a like, little carousel. Like what is mindfulness? How do you be in the moment? Uh, but mindfulness is really about understanding your emotions a bit better. So I guess the metaphor that I learned mindfulness with is you're, you're looking out a window at a road and you're watching the cars pass by, and each car is a thought that you're having. Mm. And the thought can be like, I'm a horrible person, I need to die. And so you just watch the car go by, and you're like, yeah, I am having this thought. And yeah. eventually it will pass and be replaced with another thought, like, I'm really hungry, I wonder what kind of sandwich I'm going to have later. And then you just watch that thought pass as well. Yeah. And it's realizing that you can sit in the middle of all of these thoughts and not let any of them force you into action you're just being present and observing the thoughts as they're happening in a non-judgmental way yeah it's just like meditation basically yeah um, yeah i think i i don't know is mindfulness helpful for you actually sometimes um well i, I don't feel like i've had a big bpd episode in a long time yeah i don't know if it's because so, of my adhd but mindfulness has always been super difficult for me I don't think it's easy for anybody. As in, it's not the it's not like the non-judgmental thing that's difficult. It's just difficult for me to like do it for a prolonged period of time. I get super distracted. I think that's the point, though. It's like anyone is going to get distracted, right? Because your yeah. thoughts are your thoughts, but it takes discipline to just treat them as thoughts as like almost disembodied concepts. Yeah. No, I mean when I did it, I had to really force myself to do it. But I know, like friends who've gone to therapy and have really like inducted mindfulness into like their routines because they it really helped them but I never got that I, I think like as like for everyone different parts of DBT will help them the most like depending on like how bad your symptoms are I think it's really just equipping you with a list of skills so that when you are having an episode the first thing you do is think okay what has therapy taught me because if you are left on your, to your own devices and you react the way that you would, it's usually a disordered way of behaving. Yeah. And it's, it doesn't help you get what you want. It's funny because like, I've talked to my brother about this before. And my brother is a really well-adjusted person, right? 
So yeah, he's I've spoken local. to him about, you know, when something happens, when a crisis, emotional crisis happens. I always ask him whether like he has to think, like think the way I do about like steps you should take in order to avoid, you know, um, blowing up horribly. And it's just like so second nature to him. And I don't know, sometimes I just wonder, <laughs> I don't know, how much less tired I would be if I didn't have to react to emotional triggers so consciously. And I wonder if after, obviously it's been a while, but I know it still doesn't get easier. I still have to like work really hard to control my emotional responses. Um, yeah, I just sometimes wonder if it becomes, you know, more second nature. I guess with practice, I yeah. also wanted to say that like, if you feel like all of these BPD symptoms resonate with you, you should get a diagnosis. Yeah. I don't... I'm personally not a big fan of self-diagnosis. I know that, like, it's necessary because mental health care is expensive yeah. a lot of the times, so or not always accessible. But... I don't know. I don't know how to put this. I don't know, like, Natasha and I were talking about it the other day. That, like... You can have negative emotions, negative reactions to things, and those things can be valid. Like they can be genuinely how you're feeling without you having to put the label of a diagnosis on. You don't need a diagnosis to be valid. No, we're saying that a disorder is basically when it comes with dysfunction, right? So when it yeah. starts to really interfere with like your daily life. Um Yeah, because like uh Mental health is a huge spectrum from like healthy to unhealthy. Just because you like deviate slightly from the norm or you feel things a bit more than like other people doesn't necessarily mean that you're disordered. Um, but I think because of kind of like the normalization of mental health in you know mainstream discourse, which is a good thing, I also think that it's like leading to a lot of misuse of terms um and when you're young you really want to try to understand yourself and you like you know are very eager to like label yourself sometimes with a disorder but it's definitely like better to get a diagnosis um and I think like if you if you don't go, go to a private clinic there are definitely like public clinics or like people who do you know um what's the one where you pay according to your income like a, like a sliding scale, scale. sliding scale. Yeah. There are definitely those resources. Um, just, I think, don't be too eager to over-identify and, like, make it, like, how you define yourself before you, you see someone about it. We're not, like, gatekeeping having a disorder. I think it comes from a place where I think Natasha and I, like, if we could wave a wand tomorrow and make BP to disappear, we probably would. Yeah, it's not. I mean, like I know we're making a podcast where we talk a lot about having the disorder, and it's at a point for us where we've accepted that this is going to be the way that we relate to people for the foreseeable future. We can do what we can to manage the symptoms and how we respond to things, but I don't enjoy having borderline. I don't think it makes me more interesting or more special. Yeah. I think it's landed me in the psych ward too many times for my liking. Yeah. Um, 
and and yeah, like you can benefit from things like therapy or medication or any of those things without having the label of personality disorder. Yeah. If you do have like you should see someone professional about it and try and do what you can to treat it. I'm not a fan. I'm not an advocate for people having a disorder and then just like just living with it, I guess. I don't know if I'm making any sense. Obviously, there's like problems with like excess for some people, right? But I think if you can afford therapy or if you have the means to, why not? Um, And obviously, for me, at least, I also diagnosed myself first as like a really young teenager. But eventually, you know, it, it got to a point where I obviously was not getting better on my own and it was like wrecking all my relationships and you know I got caught so I had to go for therapy. So again I think self-diagnosis is useful insofar as you are already on your way to get help. Yeah I mean I don't think I would have gotten better without professional help. But there are a lot of factors I feel to get better for BPD. I would say um, for instance if you were in a bad relationship again now even with therapy, it would be really hard, no? That's true. Um, like I'm not saying therapy was the only tool to me yeah. feeling better. Yeah. But I think like I didn't have the vocabulary or the skills to understand what was happening to me. Yeah. And my therapist has helped me a lot with that journey. Yeah, I think so. I think, I think so too. Like getting a diagnosis is about the vocabulary, right? Yeah. Yeah, I really don't want to come off like I'm gatekeeping having a disorder. Like, oh no, we have it. You can't join our club. It's not that. It's just like, as much as we talk about it openly, I don't like having it define me. Because it's not, it's not fun. It's not healthy. I think like actually part of us making this podcast or like making Crybaby is... Obviously, it sounds like we're making it about personality because we talk a lot about BPD. But actually like on our main accounts or in our personal lives we don't really talk about bpd that much right at all only I don't some think... people in my life know that i have it like yeah. my parents my partners and like some friends like you who also have it and relate yeah. to it yeah exactly and i think like this is a a space for us to like talk about it but it's like in no way like all of us at all i think it's a like quite a small part of all the other things that we are um yeah, if I were to introduce myself to somebody, I wouldn't start with this. <laughs> I wouldn't either. <laughs> but I have made a lot of friends because of BPD, I will say. Like, but because of the shared connection that you have yeah. when you have BPD as well. Exactly. Not because like... Not <laughs> yeah, when I meet BPD. someone, they have BPD also. I'm just like, okay, there is like a level of understanding between us that other people might not get. If I were to introduce myself to someone, I would start with, I'm a Jepsy. <laughs> really? Will you not start with, no. what school are you from? <laughs> <laughs> hey, do you know uh, so-and-so? <laughs> yeah, I went to Chinese station with them. I guess this brings us to the end of this episode. Uh, yeah, and if you have any other questions about BPD or about relationships, uh, our DMs are always open. And we'll start answering the other questions you sent, like the next episode onwards. Uh, 
But yeah, if you have anything else, just send it in. We're on Instagram and Twitter. You can find the handles on our anchor page, and I'll put them in the Spotify description as well. The song that you heard at the beginning of the podcast is "Better" by Sam Ray. You can also find us on just the internet. We're just floating We're avatars in cyberspace. Yeah. And if you need any, like, if you want to ask any questions about, like, how to get a diagnosis or maybe, like, resources, you can also ask us privately and, yeah, just reach out to us if you need anything. Um, Yeah. yeah, We hope you enjoyed this episode. Bye. See you next time. (laughs) Bye. Bye.